0: All right, Matthew 5 is where we are. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. There's a little sheet in front of you there that we're going to look at in about 10 minutes uh, into the, uh, uh, the lesson. So that'll be there in front of you. That's an outline of the Sermon on the Mount. So turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Well, I am... Um, I'm going to share something that happened about four years from so Aaron mentioned that uh, Ash was sick. And uh, about four years ago, I went on one of these Tough Mudders. You ever heard about this Tough Mudder with with about uh, a dozen of my friends from work? It was one of the funnest things that I've ever done. Just absolutely miserable military-style obstacles, about a 12-mile race. It ends with electric shock. I mean, not just like a little shock. It actually knocks you down. So one of those guys, only guys would think it was fun. It was really, really a lot of fun. So after that, I, um, uh, next day I caught a stomach bug. It's, I mean, it's just no shock. And I was you know, swimming in cow ponds with 20,000 other people. So, you know, big mystery, I got sick came and went away. But about a month later, I had it starting to just, my body just felt weird. I had what later I learned was neuropathy, this tingling sensation in my, uh, my hands and my feet. It was an ascending. It was working its way up my body and it was also accompanied with some, just some mild paralysis. I mean, I just started where I couldn't walk very well, but it was a very slow, it was taking place over a long period of time. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I had a preaching assignment uh, one Sunday. I'll never forget this. I couldn't stand. And so just on the front pew, I said to the guy, look, do you mind if I sit uh, while I preach? He said, fine. I wasn't trying to be a hip pastor kind of guy. I just couldn't stand. And so uh, the night before that, I'd gone to an emergency room local. We lived in Mansfield at the time and I was there for four hours. They sent me home. They said, we don't know what's wrong with you. And a long story short, uh, someone in my brother's church who was our church, he was my pastor at the time at MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church called and said, I know what he has, and he knows, to, he, knows to, he needs to go see this doctor at this hospital, so I just was, you know, begrudging it, I didn't want to go anywhere, we've been to multiple doctors, I couldn't figure out what was wrong, and if it weren't for my wife, I'd still be sitting on that couch today, I believe that with all heart. she said, get up, we're going to go, went downtown to UT Southwestern, this is a true story, we went into the emergency room, by that time, I couldn't walk very well, I had the paralysis of my face, I couldn't smile, um, And the doctor, in 15 minutes, he walked in. He had taken all the notes. And I asked him questions. He said, don't interrupt me. I already know what you have. I just need to write all this down. (laughs) Oh, okay. He said, you have Guillain-Barre syndrome. And what this is, is where uh, you, you know, your, your body fights off some type of bug, and infection. Uh, but what happens is the immune system doesn't know that it's already won. So it keeps eating, but this it starts eating away at your nerves. And in my case, the myelin coating around the nerves. Uh, you may have heard of this. Some people get this in 48 hours on a respirator. And so I was so grateful it was a long uh, uh, kind of a long-term thing. So it happened, uh, Aaron mentioned Ashley was sick. This is a, just, a, she going to kill me for mentioning this, but I'll just tell you anyway, because she's not here uh, to do anything about it. It took me about six days in the hospital and then about a year of therapy to finally get back. But that year when I got sick, we had a baby that was about eight weeks old at that time. <laughs> So she was nursing the baby to take care of me. She was already kind of sick a little bit, but my healing essentially almost killed her. And so I got better in about a year, got fine. She has never really recovered from that kind of intense time and hurt her immune system. And so we're still working through all that. So thank you for praying for us. She's made a lot of progress since we've been here for the last two years. We have a long way to go. So we're very grateful for that. But people ask you after you get through with that, especially if you're a preacher, you know, what did God teach you during this moment? You know, they're wanting to know, did you have some, you know, just angels come and visit the hospital? Or did you, you know, did you have some vision in the night? You know, what did God teach you? In fact, so many people asked me, what did God teach you? I kind of wondered, you know, how bad did they think I really was spiritually? You know, what did, really, Steve, what did God teach you? Because you really, you really need it. Uh, it. was kind of the sense I got. And God didn't teach me any one big thing. But what happened to me was all these little things kind of bubbled up to the surface that I realized some areas where I had just been, if I could use this word, I had practiced spiritual procrastination. I had this thing in my life that I didn't want to deal with, and I was saying, God, of course, I'm, you know, I'm obedient. I'm absolutely going to deal with this at some point. I promise you, God, I'm going, and i wanted just kind of pushing this stuff back, right, in the back of my mind. And the sickness had a way of making all that buoyant, right? It just, it just came to the surface, and that way is a glorious, a glorious thing. So as these things begin to su- surface, I sat down with a friend of mine who's a counselor. And uh, I said, Kyle, look, don't laugh, but I need some counseling. And of course he laughed because he's a good friend. And I said, here's, here's some things that God's taught me. Help, help me through this. Walk me through this, this process. And he said, Steve, I just have one question for you. I said, okay, what's that? He said, I want to know: are you ruined? And I was like, I don't know, are, are you ruined? You know, what, what are you talking about? But the truth of the matter, I knew exactly what he was talking about. What he was saying to me is, look, through his years of counseling, if I could put words in his mouth, I can help you with your problems. That's no issue. We can help you with that. But the question is, are you broken enough to receive the therapy? Are you ruined? That the spiritual meter in my life and in your life never moves Until we're at a place of brokenness to receive it. Okay, let me get ahead of myself a little bit, but this is so critical. All of us walked in here tonight with some immediate or long-term baggage. It could be a curse of words. Five years ago, 10 years ago, 10 minutes ago, somebody spoke something into your life and it's like a cloud hanging over you. You've always thought, I'm never going to be that smart. I'm never going to be that successful. I'll never get out of this situation. And someone just projected that to you, maybe in your youth, and you've just accepted that as your identity. Maybe right now your life is directed from the grave. Someone who's been dead years, their words still haunt you because of what they've said to you. Um, it it could be something not that someone's done to you, but something you've done to yourself. And in the back of your mind, if I could get you drunk, metaphorically that is, if I get you drunk and I could say, look, you know, what's the deal? Why don't you move spiritually? Look, there's, you know, I know what Scott teaches. I know what Pastor Graham says and Pastor Jared. But look, here's the thing with me. You just got to know I did this. I have this limitation." but here's here's the spiritual truth. If that thing, I know what it is for me, whatever it is for you, if that thing brings you to a place of spiritual brokenness, then you are qualified for the kingdom. If I could say it the other way, unbroken people are unqualified for the kingdom. And that type of shattering, radical type of message is the bomb that Jesus drops right in the very first few verses of Matthew chapter 5. And so look at it there, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now this don't think of the 12 disciples. There may have been hundreds there. There may have been thousands there. These are the people who are following him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying blessed are the poor in spirit now let's just stop right there blessed are the poor in spirit what does this mean well first of all let's talk about the word blessed what does the word blessed mean well the way we use the word blessed it really means it means nothing right we'll say you know, well, God bless you or bless your heart. I don't know what that means. In Oklahoma, we would say, well, bless his heart. And that wasn't a compliment, you know. Um, he's on JV, third string, bless his heart. You know, he's not that good of an athlete, you know. <laughs> he's been in the third grade for three years now, bless his heart. You know, he, that's the way we use that term. So what does that mean? Well, when it says blessed here, some translations will translate this as happy or joyful, but that's unhelpful listen it is not ambiguous every one of these virtues there's immediately attached a blessing so it's it's not there's no mystery to it in fact let's read the verse again and he opened his mouth and taught them saying verse three blessed are the poor in spirit for this is why they're blessed theirs is the kingdom of heaven we could say it this way congratulations to the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so the blessing is the congratulation that if you are poor in spirit, you get the kingdom of heaven. Now that, there's, it's like 40 sermons in that, in that one phrase right there. What does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the poor in spirit, what are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those people that are so broken spiritually that they know uh, they need God. That's what the poor in spirit are. They're just people that are broken over their own sin. It doesn't mean the financially poor. Um, God definitely blesses the financially poor, but, but that's not specifically what he's talking about here. Um, it doesn't mean uh, that we're, you know, have a poor personality or something like that. God, that's not what the blessing is. The blessing is very much a spiritual, attached to a spiritual attitude those people who see their sin and are willing to do something about it. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does this mean, the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven. Well, let's let's keep reading in the Beatitudes and we're gonna come back to that as we're gonna give this context. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, let's stop right there. And actually, I just changed my mind. Let's go back to verse 3. Let's deal with, Let's finish up verse 3. What does this mean, the kingdom of heaven? Well, Scott has asked that we give, give the Beatitudes context tonight. So we're trying to provide some context. So I'm trying I'm not going to preach him as much because he's going to get to do that himself. He's going to shoot me if I go through all of them. So let's stop right there and give context. This word kingdom is really the key word Helping us understand this entire sermon. What does this mean, kingdom? Well, to give context means that we pan out and see where this fits in the larger scheme. So let's pan out pretty far. Let's start with Genesis 1 1, right? That's pretty good context, right, for this. So let's work from Genesis 1 up to Matthew, uh, Matthew 5. So here we are in the Garden of Eden. God creates everything, creates a perfect environment. Adam and Eve here are created in the Garden of Eden. Uh, They're, speaking of fatherhood, they have the perfect marriage, uh, right? Eve is married to the greatest man in the world, right? He's the only man, but still, uh, he's the greatest man. Only woman that could say, my husband is the man, literally, you know. But they ruin it, right? It's all broken because of sin. And so God decides he's going to start all over with with the flood, right? Genesis chapter 6. So his first created order, destroyed by sin, he destroys. Adam destroyed it spiritually, so God destroys it physically. Started over with Noah. And then everything was perfect, right? No, no, everything wasn't perfect. Noah also was a sinful man. And so God's first human race was sinful and broken. His second human race is sinful and broken. Once Adam or Noah and Mrs. Noah get off the ark and begin to populate the world, we still see sin there. And so God decides, if you will, he's going to start over again. But this starting over, this new beginning was not with a new physical family, but with a new spiritual family. And this is where Abraham comes into the picture. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you seed. In other words, this incredible family that's going to populate the earth. I'm going to give you a a blessing, make you a blessing to all the nations. And I'm going to give you a very specific piece of land. So you read the Old Testament, real estate is very important to God. Uh, Abraham has a grandson, Isaac. Isaac has these 12 sons the 12 tribes of Israel. They go into Egypt and then they come out of Egypt through the leadership of, of Moses. And then finally, they get into the promised land. And who leads, leads them into the promised land? It wasn't Moses. It was, yeah, it'd be really bad if we missed that one. Yeah, Joshua, that we'd just been in for a few weeks. Lead, finally, leads them into the, uh, finally leads them into the promised land. And through Abraham, God made this covenant, these three things, the land, the seed, and the blessing. And he renewed that covenant through Moses. They finally get into this promised land and their, their form of government was a theocracy. God was their king. Uh, wouldn't you love to see that happen in fall, right? It's not, but that's, that was it. Uh, no president, no king, ruled by God with a series of judges. They wanted a king. God finally gave them a king. And Saul, it was disastrous. Saul was followed by David. And when David came, God re-upped that covenant that he initially made with Abraham and that he renewed through Moses and that he clarified through David that you're going to have this, this new people. So there's the human race and then there's the spiritual race, Israel, God's chosen people that are within the human race. Are y'all, y'all with me so far? So um, after David died, Solomon, his son, succeeded him. Solomon did something absolutely stupid. Um, He let his heart through his relationship with his 700 wives or 700 concubines and 300 wives, let his heart become addicted to these foreign gods and it split the kingdom. They have two kingdoms north and the south. And because they were divided, they were conquered by the Babylonians. And there entered a prophet during this time, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. And you can turn to this if you want to. I'm going to read it in Jeremiah 31. Here's what Jeremiah prophesied to these people. They were still God's people, but they were so broken. He said, look, it's not always going to be this way. So the prophet Jeremiah, he's in Judah, he's in that southern kingdom, said this. Jeremiah 31, 31. Listen to this. Unbelievable. One of the most important passages in scripture they may never heard about. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now that's absolutely huge. The promise that they made with Israel was their whole national identity. Just who they are, these special people that related to God in a unique way, different than all the other people in the world It made them special. And God just drops their expiration date on it. By the way, this covenant relationship you have, it's not going to be forever. I'm going to make a new covenant. Wow. What's that like? Well, with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, verse 32, still reading in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah says, it's not like the covenant that I made with the fathers when the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days to declare the Lord I will put my law within them listen to this and I will write it on their hearts now the law the 10 commandments and all the other laws have followed in the book of Deuteronomy they were all external but he says I'm going to put them inside of them and this is shocking And I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer. So each one teaches neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So he's suggesting that this formal religious system that they have is going to take a massive shift and it's become personal. And they're going to each evil of the relate God on their own. Now, that's, a, that's an unbelievable thought. When is that going to happen? Well, as the Old Testament develops, we realize this is going to happen when the Messiah comes and is going to be what they thought the military leader um, that was going to come and bring the royal messianic beat down on the Assyrians or the Babylonians or later the Romans. Um, and he came, Jesus came. They got the Messiah, they were promised. The problem was they didn't get the Messiah they were expecting, right? They were expecting a warrior, but instead they got a peasant. Very different than what they were expecting. Hey, by the way, let me time out and say, Jesus is a warrior. Read Revelation chapter 19. The royal messianic beatdown is coming. He looks kind and nice and almost effeminate in a lot of the Renaissance art that we think of the person of Jesus. But read Revelation 19. Jesus is coming back and will take out absolutely all of his enemies. Don't worry about that. He is a loving groom. will defend his bride. Okay. All right. So time back in. Let's go back to what we're talking about. So the Messiah comes and he's going to declare to them um, what this new kingdom is all about. And so if you read Luke chapter 22, this is the end of Jesus' life. He gives them the cup and he says, this is, and likewise, the cup after they broke, after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that has poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus uses that language there, new covenant. That's a direct reference back to Isaiah chapter 31. The Bible all interrelates to itself. Jesus saying, look, I'm here to fulfill what isaiah was talking about so this is very important so back look take your bibles look at chapter 5 and verse 3 look at it there again In fact, let's read that together let's read matthew 5 3 blessed are the poor in spirit i think i was ahead of everyone are you all with me matthew 5 verse 3 ready blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven there it is the word kingdom A lot of the whole Bible is backloaded into that word kingdom. God creates a human race, destroys it, creates another human race with Noah and his family, decides not to disgrace it, creates a new spiritual race with Israel. That kind of went south quite a bit, didn't it? And so God decides he's going to make a, keep that same spiritual lineage, but have a new kingdom, if you will, a new kingdom, a new covenant. So who's going to be in that new kingdom, though? By the way, I've been using language like God did this, it didn't work out. God decided this, it didn't work out. But that's a man-centered way of looking at things, right? God knew all of this. He's not like saying, well, I can't believe Adam sinned. Well, I guess we'll go to plan B. No, it's not, this is all where God was going to begin with. So in verse 3 says there's this kingdom of heaven. That's the kingdom that God had in mind before Adam and Eve were ever created. Those that were inherited, those who will get that kingdom, are the ones who God had in mind. So all of human history is leading here. And if this applies to us, all of the Bible then collapses into my life in this very specific way. Back to verse three Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Do you know the people who get everything God always planned to give? through all of human history. Those are are the people that are ruined. If you're distressed, if you have messed up, if you have brokenness in your heart, around you, behind you, in front of you, waiting for you at home, then you qualify to receive everything God has always ever wanted to give. Isn't that encouraging? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You say, well, that's kind of heavy. Does it get better than this? Well, actually, it gets worse. Look at the next verse. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Watch this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, what does that mean? Well, mourning is simply the outward expression of that brokenness. Maybe that is real, actual tears, um, maybe you're not very good at crying, that's not, that's not your thing, you express it in certain ways. But here's what he's saying, first of all, you start out kind of low, the people that are, that are broken, ruined, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, if you're poor, financially, it means that you want to have things, but you can't have those things, right? So this is the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit person. They want to go some places spiritually, but they can't because they're, they're, they're ruined. They're poor in spirit. But the people who see that sin so deeply, not only are they poor in spirit, but it says it goes lower, that they, they mourn about it. In other words, it's not just acknowledging, but it's this deep, deep sense of remorse. But I think it's stronger than that. There's a hint here of repentance. And by the way, remorse and regret are never your friends. Um, There's a a great song by a famous theologian named Willie Nelson uh, who said, uh, I've got a long list of long good reasons for all the things I've done, but there's nothing I can do about it now. It's a song about regret, remorse. Regret and remorse are only your friends if they lead you to repentance. If they don't lead you to repentance, it's simply a tool in the enemy to beat you down. That's not worth talking about. That's just for free. It's an aside. But if they lead you to repentance, this is the idea behind verse 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are broken because you qualify for what God wants to give to you. And then the next verse, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, who weep over sin because they will be comforted. So first of all, you have the poor in spirit. Then it goes down to those who mourn. They're actually broken and repented over their sin. And look at what happens in the next verse, verse 5. It goes in that same trajectory down. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek get, uh, well, they get everything. So there's this trajectory downward. You have the, the brokenness, the poor in spirit so broken, we're mourning, we're repentant of our sins, and then we arrive at this lowest place of meekness. Now, what is, what is meekness? Um, well, Scott's going to unpack this for us later, but I think at first blush, we would say, whatever meekness is, we don't want it, right? I mean, I've I've got lots of friends that I will talk about behind their backs, kind of say positive things about them, you know, reverse gossip, which is a good thing to do. Um, I've got a friend. I'll say, man, this guy's so bright, Uh, man, you'd love to get to know him. This guy's a phenomenal athlete. You need to get to know him. I would never say about my buddies, oh, you got to meet this guy. He is so meek, you know, right? (laughs) I I cannot think of any male context in which that would ever be a compliment, right? It's... You know, sad, but it's just true in the English language. It rhymes with the word weakness, right? And so, we just immediately think they're synonymous. So, what is weak? What is meekness, and why should we want it? Or, to say it another way, why is meekness required to follow Christ, and why is a is it a desirable spiritual virtue? Well, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is simply this: meekness is strength under submission. Meekness is all of my energy, all my tenacity, all my work ethic, all the energy I have to expire used in service of God and another other people. It's taking all of my strength and not turning it to show what a great person I am. It seems like an incredibly anti-American thing to do, a very anti-Texan thing to do, by the way. But' take all of my energy instead of saying, "Look, instead of using this on myself, I'm going to use this in service of others." That's what meekness is. The ultimate expression of meekness is Jesus, right? Was Jesus powerful? Was he strong? Yes. Um, I mean, you think about this. Jesus knew what was going on in people's minds. Have you ever been in a conversation and you had the perfect comeback about two hours later? Have you ever had that feeling? And you want to call him back and say, hey, you know, but, I, but the moment's lost. You know, you can't, you can't do that. So you replayed in your mind. This is what I would have said had I had the wits about me at that moment. Um, we've all had that feeling. In every conversation, in every context, Jesus could have absolutely shredded everyone he was ever talking to. And yet, have the three years that we have record of your life, we have of his life, we have not one instance where Jesus uses that simply for the gratification of settling the score. In fact, John five tells us this remarkable thing: everything Jesus did, he did, he did to glorify the Father. You say, "Well, didn't he just show off a little bit?" No, he never. Not one moment. That's a remarkable thing about Jesus. You know, we think Jesus comes as God in a baby and then he grows. And that's true. But Jesus was always God. All the access of the attributes of God he always had. He was still all powerful. He didn't have to sweat. He didn't have to be thirsty. So every hour that Jesus lived, he was withholding his godlike attributes. He was holding in all that made him. So the very presence of Christ is the ultimate expression of of meekness, strength under submission, power under control. Um, My boss, uh, our president, Dr. Patterson, says that um, meekness is perfectly channeled fervor. I like that perfectly channel- all my all my energy and tenacity and work and all the ethic and strength that i have but i'm going to channel it in service of god and other people that's meekness now who gets to that level of meekness it's it's the lowest place you have to be broken you have to mourn over your sins then you arrive at weakness and because it's the lowest place it's the highest spiritual virtue we have to descend into being that wonderful We have to descend into being that useful for God. Um, Now watch this. Something very interesting happens. Once you use this low place of meekness, look at what happens next. Verse 5, or excuse me, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what you learn, see, at verse 5, it's kind of bottomed out, meekness. Now it's going back up. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And this is the ultimate place because it identifies us with Christ. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then a similar blessing. Blessed are those, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it goes from poor in spirit down to mourning, down to meekness. Then it reverses the trajectory back up. But everything that comes on the other side of meekness is simply the natural consequence. Of understanding that we're broken, weeping over that sinfulness, arriving at the place of meekness, and then everything else kind of happens naturally. Does that make sense? It's like a basketball. I don't know exactly what it is that makes a basketball a great basketball, but what you don't want a basketball to be is willful, right? I mean, you don't want to throw it on the ground and say, you just cut it out. Stop slamming me to the ground. You know, The basketball shouldn't do that. If the basketball is a good basketball, when you throw it down, what happens? It goes back up. And so I, uh, I say to God, God, why, why did you allow this to happen in my life? Why did you back me into this corner? So as a father, now I have to lead this way and I have to, have to make these decisions. God, God, why did you do this to me? God, are you just throwing me away? God says, no, it's like that. I'm not throwing you away. I'm just putting you into usefulness. I'm putting you down so that you can reverse that trajectory and come back up. Isn't that counterintuitive, by the way? I mean, I'm like everyone else. I run from any type of pain and suffering. But the problem is we can't. Pain and suffering is inevitable. And Jesus says, that's okay. I'm building my kingdom out of people like you. I'm, I'm not throwing you away. I, I'm making you useful. Isn't that encouraging? I'm making you useful. So those Beatitudes are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And that goes through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So um, let's just keep reading. Look at verse 13. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, we use the salt and light metaphor as a metaphor of for being uh, effective witnesses in our culture. We're going to salt the culture. We're going to shine light. And that's true. It's especially true at the end of verse 14. But I, I think there's a hint of condemnation here. He's saying, look, you, specifically to his disciples, these were all Jewish people, by the way, you are supposed to be salting the earth. But by the way, if you lose your taste, how... How can salt get its saltiness back again? It can't, right? It's ruined. And So there's a hint of warning there. This is very important because remember, Jesus is building this new kingdom. So let's go back again. Adam and Eve, Noah, new kingdom through Abraham. Jesus says, by the way, I'm building my my new kingdom. This is what it's going to look like. And what I left out there is between the time of the new kingdom and and after the time of Jeremiah, there was what's called an intertestamental period. The period of time that goes between the Old Testament and New Testament, about 400 years. Something odd happened. There grew up a, a sect of scribes. We call them Pharisees. Who began to reinterpret the law. And they were incredibly uh, hypocritical. I mean, they were... Uh, would. Just had no fault divorce. You could just remarry and divorce, remarry and divorce. The woman had no consequence in the matter. They were incredibly materialistic. They lived for themselves. So they rewrote the law to accommodate their sin. So what Jesus has to do when he's introducing this new kingdom is he has to tear down uh, this, uh, this old kingdom. So the Beatitudes are the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. What's driving the Sermon on the Mount is this idea how my righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, is different than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And So if you look on the the page that I've given you, here is an an outline of that that sermon. So you have the Beatitudes, salt and light. Then Jesus comes to fulfill the law, which is very um, important in chapter 5, verses 18th or 20 and then he does two things he turns and he has to redefine their faith for them first he deals with their heart and says christianity is above the average in other words it's not just about anger it's about murder in other words you thought if you didn't murder you're okay jesus says i'm actually interested in your heart it's about anger and you thought if you didn't commit adultery that was fine but what about the lust that's in your heart and you thought it's okay uh, if you didn't say certain oaths that something was specific to the to the Jewish faith, but Jesus says no. Actually, that exposes a heart uh, that has a problem. Then he talks about retaliation and loving your enemies. This is just a radical countercultural message. It was then; it is now. But he was saying to them, "Look, watch your heart. Christianity is above the average. It's not just to what people to see." And he said, "Secondly, not only is Christianity above the average, but it's also." not just skin deep it's below the surface so he was dealing with their heart now he's dealing with their hypocrisy and so look at chapter six this is when this switch is made in these two major divisions in the sermon on the mount look at chapter six and verse one beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven and that's a great summary statement for everything that follows He has to tell them what real giving is. Verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Uh, Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be seen in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Christianity is below the surface. It's not just what people perceive. And by the way, that's what makes church a dangerous place because I know what to say to make you think I'm spiritual, right? I've been around long and you know what to say. I'm spiritual. But this is all all you get. This is all you see. Um, But it's so much more than that. God knows my heart. He knows the intention behind my giving, my conversations, behind my teaching. He knows what's really in my heart right now. So Jesus said, this is what real giving is. This is what real prayer is in 6, 5 through 15. Here's what real fasting is. Here's what real treasure is. He really takes on materialism because the Pharisees were so incredibly materialistic. So, this is all what it's like in the new kingdom. This is what it's like in the new kingdom, that, uh, in the new covenant that Jeremiah had promised. This is what it's like, Jesus giving the rules of the new kingdom. Here's real discretion, but also, finally, real help. And then there's this conclusion that's very interesting. It's found in chapter 7 and verse 13. It kind of ends with a warning. Look at chapter 7 and verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those that enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it. So Jesus says there's two paths. And then he carries that same metaphor in verse five or that same idea of a couplet with two trees you shall know a tree by its fruit by the way something interesting you shall know a tree by its fruit your left hand knowing your right hand is doing and then when we have the golden rule in verse 12 those are interest those of all things that have slipped into our culture right that we call them just interesting cultural phrases but they're not those are straight out of the words of christ His second couplet, people who actually know Christ and those who don't know Christ, in verse 21. And then finally, two foundations. He ends his sermon with a little story, and it's the first parable in all of Scripture. Um, It's a story about someone who builds their house on sand, and the floods came and destroyed it, versus someone who builds their house on the rock. And it's stable. And the rock, in this metaphor, is the sermon. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words, hears this sermon on the mount of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built this house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall thereof. Look at this, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not of their scribes, always deferred to other commentaries about the law he was actually teaching them with such incredible authority this is an amazing sermon isn't it it's incredible just piece of literature in and of itself and so we have so many questions about the beatitudes what do they mean well i do too have lots of questions Uh, so that's why i'm going to be here on saturday nights don't worry about your questions they're all going to be answered scott's just going to take it through us all these questions so think about the hardest theological questions that you had and bring them. Uh, I know I will. And uh, we'll just have a great time learning uh, from Scott. Uh, so speaking of confession, let me end with a confession. About uh, seven years ago, I went to a bar in the UK, in Oxford, England. I was with some other uh, Baptist preachers and students. It was called the Eagle and Child. It's the the pub that C.S. Lewis used to go to. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and uh, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, and all these things. He used to go there with a guy named Tolkien, right? Who wrote Lord of the Rings series. And they had a little society of writers they called the Inklings, because they, they used ink. So this is the idea of the Inkling Society. And they would drink beer and read each other's books to each other and all these type of things. But there was another less known guy there by the name of Charles Stewart. And he wrote a really weird book. I mean, it made C.S. Lewis seem normal, you know, with his imagination. It was called Descent into Hell, it Was his book, Descent into Hell. The premise of the book, the main character was a lady by the name of Pauline. And she... Um, Uh, really wanted to be an actress and so a famous playwright came to town he was gonna put on a play this is around the turn of the century so early 1900s and um, so as she was going to the play practice she would see this ghost following her this gets weirder as it goes on she would see this ghost following her but as she looked at this ghost more closely it wasn't just any ghost it was the German word is dopplerganger right have you heard of this it's a ghost that looks just like yourself that would be scary. So she would haunt it by herself. And so anyway, the story goes on and this uh, Pauline says to this playwright, she finally breaks down and said, look, I know this is weird, but I have this ghost following me. And um, he didn't know what to do to put her mind at ease. So here's what he said to her. I tell you what, let's do this. Why don't you just turn the ghost on to me? Because as long as it's following me, it can't be following you. And Charles Stewart titled that chapter, The Doctrine of Substituted Love. That's what Christ has done for us, right? Christ says, everything that's haunting you, actually, why don't you make it haunt me? Why don't you give that thing? If if I'm holding it, then you can't, by force of logic. Why don't you give that thing to me? Because this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying all the things that we're running for, these visions of ourselves, don't run from them, just bring them back up front. Let's deal with them. They don't disqualify you. Actually, they qualify for you. And that's the promise of the Beatitudes.